Hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to another episode of Crazy Money. This is your host, Paul Ollinger, but you knew that, didn't you? Yes, we now have sound effects on the Crazy Money podcast. It's big time. <laughs> hey, it's a great day to be alive. I hope you're having a good one. I hope the sun is shining on you wherever you are and that you're doing interesting things. I'm going to help you have an interesting day by introducing you to my new friend, Rick Bronson, with whom I had the chance to speak at the Big Pine Comedy Festival in Flagstaff, Arizona a couple of weeks ago. Rick is an award-winning comedian, magician, TV host, and entrepreneur who runs some of the best comedy clubs in North America. I'll tell you more about him in just a minute. But first, I want to share a couple things that you might do to entertain yourself. First, I want to invite you to listen to my comedy EP. An EP is an album made specifically for busy people. Hey, I had more material. I just didn't put it all on the recording, if you will. It's called Alive on the Upper West Side. You can find it on Spotify, Deezer, or if you like to pay for stuff, you can find it on iTunes. Pay for it, don't pay for it, rent it, whatever. I end up making about the same, which is which isn't tons of money. I just want you to listen to it and laugh and share it with your friends. Okay, cool. Thanks. Secondly, if you happen to live in Ohio, I'll be at the Funny Bones in Dayton, Columbus, and Toledo. Or is it Toledo? Toledo in Spain. I don't know. Ernst Hemingway, Ernest Hemingway would call it Toledo. Ernst Hemingway is one of the former partners at Ernst & Young. I don't know. I'm just talking here. Anyway, I'll be at those Funny Bones in December. Hope to see you out there. I'll be the feature act different headliners in each city. There you go. Okay. I had the great pleasure of speaking with my new pal, Rick Bronson at the Big Pine Comedy Festival in Flagstaff, Arizona, a couple of weeks ago, and really enjoyed the conversation. Before I introduce you to Rick through his bio, I just want to say thank you to the staff of uh, Broken Drift Productions who produced the festival. It was awesome. Flagstaff is a beautiful place. High, high quality comedy was there. Great industry folks, including Rick, were there. So thank you, Hillary, Brian, Jack, Joe, Bill, Buck, and everyone else who works at Broken Drift and put a lot of work into the festival whose names I do not have in front of me. I know I'm missing some people. Please accept my apologies. Okay. Rick Bronson is an award-winning comedian, magician, TV host, and entrepreneur. I say that in my best French because Rick is from Montreal, as you'll hear. He has worked with President Bill Clinton, Spinal Tap, Martin Short, the Smothers Brothers, and many other fascinating people. Now, if you're a millennial or younger, you might have to Google some of those names, but please take this Gen Xer's word that those are some high-quality comedy acts and or the former president of the United States of America. Rick is the recipient of eight COCA Comedian of the Year Awards, an Ampia Award for Best TV Host on his travel series, The Tourist, and many other comedy accolades. Today, Rick owns and operates, along with his wife, without whom he could not do it, as you'll hear, some of North America's top comedy clubs, including the Houses of Comedy in Minneapolis and Phoenix, at the respective locations, they're singular, but it's the House of Comedy in Minneapolis and Phoenix, the comic strip in Edmonton, and coming soon, the comic strip in East Rutherford, New Jersey. There you go. There you go. Okay. All right. All right. Calm down. Calm down, everybody. Calm down. We talked live at the Big Pine Comedy Festival in Flagstaff, Arizona, as I said, about transitioning from life as a performer, running a successful business, smoked meats, and finding happiness amidst life's ups and downs. And the key to happiness, as you'll hear, is smoked meats and golf. Those two things, at least for him and me, probably. Anyway, ladies and gentlemen, please enjoy my conversation with Rick 
Bronson. Everyone wants a higher level of success than where they're at. But I also know that there are guys that would kill to have the type of success that I, to have their own series for three years. I've done four different independent uh, stand-up specials on TV. I toured the globe doing comedy. And to many people, that's massive success. And even to me, I, I don't want to, you know, belittle that. Am I my fellow Canadian Jim Carrey? No, I mean, but... I think people just have to be realistic about where their success barometer is, you know? Mm -hmm. What is the level? What's going to make you happy? My name is Paul Ollinger. I'm a stand-up comedian with a background in the corporate world. I hit the lottery when I worked at a small company called Facebook. I'm fascinated with money, why we're so obsessed with it, and how it makes us happy or not. Welcome to Crazy Money. He's an award-winning comedian, magician, TV host, writer, producer, musician, and taxidermist. His one-man show has earned him eight COCA Comedian of the Year awards. He won an AMPIA award. AMP, for an AMP award, AMP, yeah. Okay. Essentially, I'm going to tell you that he's done comedy and magic all over the world just for Laughs Comedy Festival. He's worked with Bill Clinton, Spinal Tap, Martin Short. Not coincidentally, he also owns and operates some of North America's top comedy clubs, the Comic Strip in West Edmonton Mall, the House of Comedy with locations in Mall of America in Minnesota, High Street in Phoenix, Arizona. And is this up to date that you're going to open one in East Rutherford? East Rutherford in the new uh, American Dream Center there. Nice. It's the new Mega Mall there. Yeah, right. I, ha I have an affinity for large shopping centers. Right. Obviously, making up for some things. So uh, yeah, we're in the okay. uh, we're in all the big retail centers. We're West Edmonton Mall, Mall of America, and uh, awesome. hopefully very soon American Dream. All right, Rick Bronson, welcome to Crazy Money. Thank you, bud. Appreciate it. Okay, for the audience, we are uh, live at the Big Pine Comedy Festival in Flagstaff, Arizona, where it's a gorgeous day. A beautiful day. And uh, yeah. There's dozens of great comics here. There's a lot of industry. Rick is both a comedian and somebody who's pretty important in the comedy industry. So as part artist, entertainer, part entrepreneur, businessman, yep. what percentage would you allocate to each slice of those in your life pie? Well, even when I was solely a performer prior to becoming an entrepreneur, I would still suggest, and I believe in this old uh, show business adage, that it, it is really 90% business and 10% show. And I don't know, maybe it, and, and, and perhaps- That's so unromantic. Per, perhaps I'll get, uh, you know, uh, a, a little racial with myself. Maybe it was growing up in a very Jewish family in uh -huh. a Jewish neighborhood, but- Where was that? I grew up in Montreal. I grew up in a suburban area of Montreal called Cote St. Luke, which was also lovingly referred to as Cote St. Jew, if it gives you any <laughs> indication of the people that- habituated in the neighborhood. You do have wonderful smoked meats in Montreal. Excellent smoked meats. So did you go to the festival? Have you been up to Montreal? I've been to the festival, yes. What year were you at the festival? Well, just to be clear, I was at the festival. I was not in the festival. So you haven't 2017. Well, this is a good year for you to be in Flagstaff then with Absolutely. my dear friend Jeff Singer yes, here, well, who is the uh, the star finder for the Just I, for Last Festival. That. I yeah, see the man with the hat walking the around. The man with the hat. is yeah. That's his uh, Twitter handle as well, I believe. Jeff Singer Hats. That's what he goes under. <laughs> So you grew up in Montreal. 
Yes, sir. What did mom and dad do in Montreal? Um, so I actually came from a very middle-class family. My father was a uh, kind of a commercial broker who ended up being a manager of one of the uh, uh, shopping centers in Montreal called the Cavendish Mall, also in Cote St. Luke, so a very Jewish mall, so much so that it was more known as the Schmall. That's what everyone <laughs> called it there. Let's all hang out at the Schmall. And my mother, God bless her heart, was a uh, teacher her entire life. What'd she teach? Uh, she taught mostly uh, young children, grade three, grade four, grade five. But she also taught at the uh, JPPS, which was the Jewish school in Montreal, the private Jewish school. So she was uh, fluent in uh, English, French, Hebrew, and... Uh, no, Yiddish is a bit of a dying language. Yeah. yeah. I, uh, well, can I talk? Can you ever get dirty on the show? Is sure. A, say whatever you well, want. Well, here's why I think oh, it, the crowd here, likes dirty. Here's why I think Yiddish is a dying language. My great grandmother, the one expression I remember that she taught me as a child is "geim kakinyan," which literally translates to "go shit on the ocean." And why that's necessary? Exactly. What, does, Sir, it you, what does that actually mean? It, exactly, Paul. What does off. it mean? Like, yeah. it, what? A, what a strange way to tell someone to fuck off right, if that's yes. what you're trying to do. Just game kakyan. <laughs> game kakinyan. Game Okay. Yeah. There you go. So one. I actually do speak. Uh, I'm uh, I'm bilingual. I speak English and French, and you know, part of that's just growing up in Montreal. Uh, I had to take studies in French. It was part of our school board system. Right. And uh, believe it or not, as a performer coming up, I actually had done some performances in French, which is uh, always interesting when you're performing in your second language. Do you find the nuance to be a little bit more difficult when you're performing in your Much second language? Much more, because I go from doing stand-up to having to put on my Jerry Lewis outfit for the French to try <laughs> to get them entertained. Uh, no, you know what? The, the difficulty in that, in all honesty, is uh, less about the nuances, and there certainly are many, you're absolutely right, but it was more the fact that even though I could speak French quite well, I still found that I thought in English first, did the translation, and then spoke in French, because it's not like I had my jokes in French memorized to heart the way we all have it in our sure, English shows sure. where, you know, we've all said this on some nights you can do your show in the sleep while you're sleeping. I remember doing a show with the TV facing me during the Blue Jays World Series game right. uh, and I watched the entire nine innings. <laughs> I remember the game as like it was yesterday and I couldn't tell you anything about the show other than it went well. I mean, right. I had a good yeah. show apparently. Yeah. So where does the uh, performance bug come from? The performance bug started very early for me. I was a uh, um, 12 years of age, and I started doing uh, magic. A friend of mine showed me a magic trick, and uh, I was amazed. And I said, how'd you do that? And wouldn't tell me. And I was one of these kids that when you didn't tell me something, I figured out a way to find out what you're hiding from me. Right. And in those days, obviously no internet, so I had to go to the, uh, the damn library. So that was my first foray into researching magic was at the library. I did that for three years. What and was it, your first trick? My very first trick. Was Everybody gather around. Little no, Ricky's got a trick. It was probably with decks of cards. They were card tricks. But my first bought trick, purchase trick from a magic store was probably the magic coloring book where it's a book where you show black and white images and then you have kids, you say, pretend to color it in. Then you open it back up and now they're all colored in. And then you tell the kids to blow on the book and all the colors will disappear. Then you go, oh, you blew too hard. And now all the pages are blank. Mm -hmm. It was a killer 12 seconds, honestly. I mean, <laughs> I should have opened with that at JFL the year I did that show. 
it was not very long. I literally went from magic at 12 to doing stand-up at 15. Where was uh, your first performance? My very first stand-up performance was at the Comedy Nest in Montreal. Oh, uh, yeah, I've been there. Which is... And not uh, just at the Comedy Nest, in the Comedy Nest. And on the on stage. stage Attaboy. Yeah, yeah. I'm actually heading back there uh, October 24th through 26th. Awesome. They are doing their 40th anniversary of the Comedy Nest. So all these comics that started there who yeah. are all now off in L.A., New York. Jeff and, Rothpan. Uh, Jeff Rothpan will be back. Nice. John Rogers, if you know John Rothpan. John Rogers wrote Rush Hour, a oh, guy wow. who I started with. John Rogers wow. did the series Leverage on okay. a very, very talented showrunner in Hollywood. One of the best. Uh, does uh, one of Jackie Chan's writing partner. Like every Jackie Chan production is with John Rogers. So you start there at 15. 15 years of age, and believe it or not, co-headlined a year after at 16. Holy wow. Yeah, it was a little, it was a little crazy. What was your set like back then? I'm 50 now. I can't remember, but I know <laughs> it wasn't good. I mean... I started, because I was a magician, I started as a prop comic. I did comedy and magic. So it was really a combination of the two, right? I did magic and comedy. But um, at around 17 or 18, after taking enough shots in the arm about being called a prop act, I quickly turned that uh, endeavor into becoming a uh, full-time stand-up and then more or less dropped any prop that I had ever used. Yeah, I've uh, grown up on stage, and it was that or I was going to be the fat kid that got picked on. So it was my self-defense mechanism. So you're 15. When you're doing this, are your parents supportive? Are they worried that it's getting in the way of your studies? Are you out of your... Tr I, I have Jewish parents. There's three <laughs> jobs for a kid when you have Jewish parents. Wait, let me guess. Go ahead. Doctor. Good. Lawyer. Lawyer. Undertaker. Major disappointment. Ma that's <laughs> it. Doctor, <laughs> lawyer, or major disappointment. There that's is right. no... Yeah, that yeah. is it. And so you, yeah. you were headed toward the third category. I was, I, you know, I, I was heading, I, I, in, in their mind, I was in the third category when I had made my choice and been this for a long time uh, until a couple of things changed, until I started allowing them to stay in my guest house in Scottsdale. Now they love their son. <laughs> and when I uh, introduced, I don't know where your politics fall here, folks. I'm Canadian. I don't have a horse in the race, but I was doing a lot of work on speaking tours with President Clinton, mm -hmm. uh, opening up for him. So when my parents got to meet President Clinton, now their son was kind of a big shot. They were very proud at that point. But uh, so, but, but that didn't happen right away. So you're... So, no, what, what that you, doesn't, that's not an overnight thing. No. So you're 15, you're in high school. At some point, you got to decide to go to college or not. Did you go to college? I went to, in uh, Montreal, we have a, a secondary schooling after high school called CEGEP, which is actually a junior college. It's essentially a college tr and training school is what it is. And uh, I went there for what's supposed to be a two-year program, and I was already so wrapped up in entertainment uh, that I didn't give it my all, mm -hmm. that I ended up having to be there for a third year to a point where I finally broke my parents' heart, told them I was dropping out, uh, I would not be going to college, and that I'd be pursuing my dream in comedy. And you're, uh, are you working the road at that point? Are you paying uh, your rent? Are I you still am, living in your parents' I basement? I am moved out. I am living with my first girlfriend at the time, and uh, I, uh, I am making rent. Yeah, I was... Uh, you know, I was lucky because even though when you know, we all know when you start comedy, you don't make a lot of money. But, oh, I did. But I did. You did? Well, I'm going to have no. to hear your success story. But I, uh, I did make money uh, as a children's. I still kept my day gig on the weekends doing kids' birthday parties. Okay. And believe it or not, that paid uh, pretty damn well. Well, yeah, so, I've paid for a few of those. There you go. Parties. Yeah. So uh, the reptile guy does not come cheap. No. <laughs> It does not at all. No. Nor does the cleanup afterwards, by the way, right, just so that's you know. Right. 
so you're working the road. How do you transition from paying the bills with kids' birthday parties to paying the bills with doing the kind of entertainment that you want to do? Um, I got very lucky uh, when I was uh, coming up because, and I think a lot of it was due to starting at such a young age, but uh, at the age of 21. Uh, what, I, uh, what year is this now? 21, born in 68, so that's oh, 90. 82. Uh, 68 plus 20 is 88. Is 89. Not 89. 89. I have an MBA, just for the record. <laughs> I know what the hell was I telling you about. I was that's doing right. all that math, and I just lost you're, my you're, train of thought. You're a year ahead of me, so. Uh, am I a year ahead of you? Yeah, yeah I'm 50. What was I just answering for you, though? I just, so you're 20. You're, you're, I oh, you asked what me year how. was it? It's 1989. Right, so, when, uh, so I'm 21. I'm about five, six years into stand-up, feeling cocky and confident. And I said, I think I'm going to try doing TV. Right. And, <laughs> sure. Uh, yeah, why not? I mean, I got Who into do comedy. I call to easy. do that? Right. Didn't call. I literally said, uh, let's shoot a pilot. I have an mm -hmm. idea for a TV show, which was a, a show, was a, tra a travel show idea, which I had because I was already traveling and I was already doing these things of being funny and silly in different cities and uh, I, I uh, pitched a TV show or I shot a pilot for a TV show that was a travel show but it wasn't like the ones that were on TV that drove me nuts that were these long beauty shots with these long voiceovers of boring narrators Rick telling Steve's. you Exactly. I made mine more about the people than actually the place and seeing it through their eyes. What makes your city so cool? And the fun stuff. And we always did it in an entertaining, comedic way. And uh, I was very lucky that we shot this pilot. We bought, brought the pilot to the Banff Television Festival. A Canadian network was interested in it, and I sold the show in my first time trying to sell a show, which I just thought, well, I guess this happens for everybody. Sure, yeah, I mean, doesn't it? I didn't know until years later. I mean, I may as well have won the lottery, right? It's mm -hmm. lightning in the bottle. That shit right. doesn't happen to anybody. And uh, we did the show on Canadian TV for one year. It was called The Tourist. It was on the uh, uh, Outdoor Life Network in Canada. And then the Travel Channel in the U.S. caught wind of it and approached us and uh, bought the series. And then we became a big U.S. brand. And they produced our show for many, many years. And it was an international series, and it was dubbed in around 20 different languages. Wow. And How many seasons? In, uh, we got three seasons out of it. Sadly, a year shy of syndication numbers ah, and me making it. some really good money yeah. off of it. But you know what? It, uh, it, I produced the show, wrote the show, directed episodes, and hosted the show. So um, I was you know, very entrepreneurial. I you know, bought my first house. It was, uh, it was, you know, we were on in 41 countries. So at a very young age. At a very, very young age, yeah. Um, so that was probably, you asked me how that catalyst to going from comedy to the next step, that was probably the next big step. Then I got bored of TV and missed doing comedy and went back to doing comedy. Yeah. And it's like just, Bert Kreischer, in and out. Of it's kind of what I did, yeah. yeah. And then it's funny, and I met Bert years later, and Bert, too, ended up being a host on the Travel Channel yeah. for many years. And then he says, I want to be back in the clubs, and he goes back into the clubs. Back into the clubs, yeah, and, yeah. and, and, with a, and, and kick every door in, too. Oh, my God, he's blowing it blowing Unbelievable. It so, okay, so you're, so you do that, you're 25 or something, you want to go back on the road, are you dedicated to, whatever, 45 weeks a year on the road? I'm spending about 40 weeks a year on the road, I'm doing anywhere from 300 to 400 sh shows a year at this time, because mm -hmm. I'm doing a lot of NACA dates, a lot of COCA dates, so lots of schools, colleges, a lot of corporate shows, I'm not going to lie, I was definitely a, one of those comics that was a money whore, I like taking <laughs> the high paying gigs, yeah. I was the guy that would easily turn down a weekend at a club, knowing that I could go do one show and make the same money for one night than I would for the club. And are you are you dating anybody at this time? No kids. Yeah, yet? no. I was all. I got married at uh, at 25. I met my wife in 
uh, at 23, engaged a couple of years. 20, 26, I was married and had my first kid quickly after, yeah. Got two boys. I've got a 93, uh, 96 and a 2003, both low mileage if anyone's interested. <laughs> Nobody, so, huh? so, No takers. So, so it, Nobody. Makes, it, it makes sense at this point, though, that you're turning down four nights away from home for the same money that you could get for doing one night away from home. Well, it's funny. You know, when I... So the next thing that ha I'll have to say this to give you a bit more of a backstory, but the next thing that kind of happened to me is I ended up finding myself a club owner only by fluke because um, I got very, very sick. I have Crohn's disease. Mm -hmm. uh, hospitalized me for about two months to a point where we real as, as I watched my funds vanish out of my bank account when you're not working for two months, uh, we realized very quickly that we needed plan B. We couldn't, I couldn't be the sole breadwinner, couldn't just rely on my ability to be funny and get up on stage as our revenue generator. We need something reliable. Let's open a restaurant. <laughs> yes, exactly. The most failed business in the world. <laughs> right. well, well pointed out. Yes. You are so, not wrong. So what happened? How did you stumble into this by, so, by, by on purpose? A little bit on purpose, a little bit by fluke. So it went at West Edmonton Mall, where my first location is, there was a former comedy club, part of the Yuck Yucks comedy chain in but Canada. But are you living in Edmonton at the time? Yes, because I had met my wife on tour in Edmonton. Okay. So I decided to move to Edmonton with our intention on moving to Vancouver, doing some production work on the coast there. And my ultimate goal was always I wanted to end up in L.A. Always saw myself as a staff writer would have loved the idea of writing like on a family guy right. or a Bob's Bur a type of show where there it's limitless any idea can be done you right. know yeah. love that idea uh, but uh, the, getting sick put a uh, absolutely put a roadblock to all those ideas and at the time there was a yuck yucks in West Edmonton Mall who couldn't come to terms with their lease deal with the landlords decided to move out I decided to go meet with the mall I was there's a still brash a stage there right 20-something kid, I go up and see them, and I, I think I said something as obnoxious or as cocky as, uh, if you want to keep doing comedy in this mall, I'm the only guy in this city that can do it. And, and I believe it. I mean, I really felt sure. that. I, yeah. I mean, when I did do it and they gave it to me and I took it over, I had no clue that I had no clue about the restaurant business and labor and food costing, liquor costing, and understanding HR and understanding, I mean... Uh, there are so many nuances into running a restaurant and bar that I, I can't even begin to start listing them off because we'll be here all night. Did yeah. you have outside investors that helped you get that club up and going? The very first time, yes. Originally, I opened that club with uh, the owners of Second City because, mm. uh, strangely enough, my wife's uh, cousin is Len Stewart, who is the money uh, behind Second City. Him and Andrew Alexander were business partners. That's in Toronto? Toronto and Chicago, but okay. both second right, cities, right, yeah. Okay. And so, so they got you up and going. How do you know, like at what point, what year is this again? Oh, shit. You're asking the guy with the worst memory to remember years. But this, I, we, it'll be 16 years ago we opened the comic strip in West Edmonton Mall, almost 17. This so, is 2003. 2003, Okay, yeah. so you spent a lot of years on the road really grinding it out and then producing TV. E even when we had just opened the club, I still went on the road because I didn't know if the club was going to be successful and I couldn't do the 40 weeks like I used to do because right. I was sick, but my wife was still making me go out for the high-paying corporates, believe me. Yeah. Is your wife working at this point? Uh, my wife is working in the business now, so once we opened the club, it became a family business pretty much right away. Okay. So my wife actually handles all the bookings. She has the joy of having to deal with the agent who I don't want to be dealing with anyways, so it's a win-win situation. <laughs> so when you open a club, 
Are you just stressed out of your mind? Or you Absolutely. Worried? Yeah. Especially since we had a documentary film crew following me along for the entire ride. Really? Because yeah. they wanted to see what was going to happen? Yeah. So tell me about that. Like, what is the mindset of somebody who goes from idea to, like, bringing this thing to fruition? Are you just shitting yourself? Well, actually, you must have been because you had Crohn's disease. But, uh, sorry. <laughs> he'll, be, he'll be here sorry, all week, ladies that? and gentlemen. Can I say that? Try the veal. <laughs> Sorry, but were you were you like just how what, on, a, on a scale of zero to ten? What was your stress level like opening the club? I mean, it was absolutely through. The, I mean, there's ebbs and flows, you know, because right. you have some good days where you kind of feel like, oh, that went well. That took a lot of stress off the yeah. uh, off the body. But yeah, until you open, until it's actually up and running, it's it's incredible. It's like producing TV show now. I mean, we just produced last year. We did it uh, for local NBC. We produced the Rose to Shane Doan, former captain mm -hmm. of the Arizona Coyotes. And it was eight months of pre-production and busting your ass and making sure everything's perfect for one night of filming. And if it doesn't go well, those eight months feel like you just took a Shit, you know, you may as you just been murdered. I'm, but if it goes great, it's the most amazing, intense, crazy eight months that you've ever spent. But a restaurant is every single day. Well, Absolutely, I mean, like Tuesdays through yeah. Sundays or whatever. And and I do it three, to four times over in four different locations. Right. Well, but you didn't do that right out of the gate. So no, how long did it take for you to say? I know what I'm doing here. This club's in the black. I want to scale this up. Uh, we opened our second club four years after the first club. Opened the third one three years after that. And uh, I can't go into too much detail in, on this podcast on, that, uh, on this, but I will say we'll be doubling the size of our... Uh, Revenue, uh, revenues. <laughs> Let's oh yeah, doubling the size of our venues this calendar year. Oh, in one interesting. Year. So you have a lot of capital improvements you'll be making. Um, in some instances, in some instances, the locations that we're taking over and assuming uh, aren't going to uh, aren't going to require too many uh, capital improvements because of the right spaces. But um, so, so clearly, the business is going well. Uh, that or I'm a sucker for punishment. You know, right. <laughs> I, look, I'll tell you that anyone who gets into the comedy club business to get rich, rich, rich is out of their mind. You might make a good, good living. How about rich? Just rich. Um, I think you can get mildly rich. I don't think you can get stupidly rich. I How really do you don't. define rich? What does rich mean to you? Rich means that when my kids go over the data on the cell phone monthly, I stop losing my shit. <laughs> so I'm still losing my shit. So we're not rich yet. <laughs> okay. So and we have 43 fucking gigs. Isn't that enough for a family? <laughs> a family of four. Um, is it me? I, I'm not crazy, right? I get so mad. Sorry. No, that's quite it's nice all right. having an audience it at is. a podcast. It I like is. being able to ask questions. <laughs> I, I hate that they don't answer back, but I like being able to ask the questions. We're gonna, it, it's okay. My crowd didn't answer back last night either. Not at all. Um, uh, oh, you mean your set? I thought yes. you did a fine job oh, last night. You. I was thank at your you. show. Oh, yeah, you were. Thanks. Okay, let's talk about the clubs. I want to come back to your family in a minute. Sure. Uh, because I'd like to come back to them in about two weeks, actually. <laughs> <laughs> all mean, right. How do you know? Okay, so we talked about how do you know it's just, uh, what kind of environment do you want to create in your clubs? What is the experience you're looking so, for? So uh, we're really big on de developmental. We want uh, our uh, our our clubs to feel like a real safe place for learning for comics. We encourage our comedians, our local comics, that when we have headliners coming through, we say if you're not working, if you're not on the road, if you're not out of town that week, you come see that act. 
it's comedy college. That's their opportunity mm-hmm. to get good at their craft. And you're being taught by the best professors across North America. What about for the customer? How so? What do you mean? Well, what do you want the customer to feel when they leave your venue? Oh, uh, without question, my first thought is I want their first thought to be, let's do this again next week. Right. It used to be considered that someone was a really big comedy fan if they went to a comedy club three, four times a year. We have guests that come to our clubs every two weeks. I had one guy once that we called Mr. Reg, Mr. Regular, came to a full calendar year of comedy. Wow. Saw 52 headliners. Wow. Yeah. He's got nothing going on at Probably home. not, but <laughs> I will take 52 Mr. Regs. I mean, it's only slightly sadder to come here on a Saturday afternoon, or Friday afternoon. Friday, 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 Friday. That's right. So it's not as depressing us. as a Saturday. That's right. Saturday uh, would be depressing, yeah. So, so you want people to think about, to know that your venue is a place where, even if they don't recognize the name of the headliner, they're going to have a great experience. <sighs> Even if they don't recognize the name of our headliner, we will guarantee you that our headliners are such up-and-coming talent. I mean, uh, my wife is really, really good. She has helped break, break a lot of talent. Um, uh, I mean, she's had headline on her stages first. Trevor Wallace headlined for her before anyone else. TJ Miller headlined for her before anyone else. Uh, she has a really, really good eye for uh, for comedy talent. I mean, she's been with me for 20... She's been around comedy now for 25 <laughs> years. Or 27, but we've God been married her. for 25 years this summer, yeah. What are the things that stress you out the most about the business? The uncertainties, but they're the uncontrollables. So it's hard... You know, it's stupid to get stressed about it, but it's hard not to get stressed about it. It's difficult to not get stressed when my comic who comes from America to come play in a Canadian venue, play in the Canadian room, and they don't tell us that they have a prior and <laughs> the country... Not is, a Richard Pryor. Uh, yeah, right? not, no, they, not that, yeah, they don't have a Richard Pryor comedy album collection. No, but no. They, they have a prior conviction. An interesting conviction. Uh, yeah, and uh, how many times uh, I've had to uh, race down to the airport and beg and plea, uh, sometimes to success and other times to no success with the comic getting back on a plane and right back to America. Uh. So... You can't control for those situations, but yeah, they stress you out, man. You can yell at their agent, though, when I mean, that happens. Yeah, but what, what good does that do, right? Nothing for your weekend. Absolutely not. not. I mean, yeah, it's not going to do shit. But um, yeah, I mean, look, we, it's a high-stress business from your perspective as a comic, from my perspective as a club owner. Uh, I mean, believe me, when we book a guy like you, we, we don't... Last thing we want to see is you have any rough shows. It's not in our interest. It's certainly not in your interest as sure. a guy who wants to get booked back again. Mm-hmm. But, uh, you know, the big thing is, like you asked, I want their first thought to be, let's do this again next week. But really, I want them to have an appreciate. We really just want to develop comedy. I think if my wife and I can do anything in our lifetime is uh, we want to be remembered for really trying to help raise the comedy bar and bring give comics the opportunity to do so give them the stages give them the platforms and back them up too i mean my wife and i we run a club that uh i don't care what kind of hate mail we get from our our uh our fans and our and our customers and we love them and we appreciate them but we will never ever censor a comedian Right. We will not. I truly believe that comedy clubs are the last bastion of free speech in the world, and it's the last soapbox that we truly have. And I don't. Uh, I, I I am not comfortable censoring a comic. And I don't always agree with what a comic says, but I'm still. We just will not censor. 
What do you want your employees to say about, about you and your clubs? Oh, that's a great question. I mean, I hope they, uh, I really hope more than anything that, you know, because I do spend a lot of time at all of my venues, but I, and I work on all different levels. I hope that every one of my employees can learn something from me. I hope mm. I spend the type of time with all of them that they at least something rubs off on them that improves them in their capacity and their position at my business. But you know what? I'm not really... I'm a comic, and I was an insult comic, and I, and I get beat up by other comics. Yeah. You know, I, I have pretty thick skin. I'm not really too concerned if I'm loved or hated. It's not one of those scenarios. I think staff genuinely like me because I give my staff a lot of breathing room. I let them run their venues, the managers. If they're doing a good job, I give them a lot, a lot of room to, mm -hmm. to do their job. Um, and, uh, and I think there's a, uh, you know, I, I, we show a lot of respect to our staff, you know, we don't, uh, we're a mom and pop shop, so we right. don't, we don't treat it like corporate America, you know, we treat it like a family run business. Is it easier to run a business in Canada or in the United States? <sighs> it's a also a really great question, but different answers. It could go either way. So economically America, without question, let's look at booze bottle of vodka down here will cost me nine dollars for a bottle of well vodka same bottle will cost me around 22 bu bucks in wow. canada can so, you pass those costs on to a certain extent but what i mean who you want to pay for a nine dollar rum and coke ten dollar no. rum and coke no, no i don't think so um but in canada when a customer gets banged by the theater door because they're standing too close to it and it's their own fault and they're just a stupid idiot, they walk away going, I'm a stupid idiot. I probably shouldn't have been standing in front of that door. Yeah, call an attorney. In America, it's about $132,000 and 615-odd change. Something just like, approximately? Yeah, somewhere in there, yeah. But 132 k yeah. Oh, my God. Yeah. That's really, yeah. So... Yeah, we're not as uh, litigious in Canada. Sadly, it's going in that direction, but we're still not nearly as litigious. Um, but uh, the, the other point, I guess the other thing I enjoy about Canada is the instances when there is one of those bad bar brawls that happen at comedy. <laughs> Never happened. But if there were a bad bar brawl in Canada, I go right to the emergency room and I'm patched up for free. Here, right. I'd be screwed, you know? Yeah, right, yeah. <laughs> Ah, the good old days. Where the, the, the old, good old days. saloons in Deadwood. Hey, I By remember the, I, I started in the mid-'80s. I remember working strip clubs. I worked beside a pole, dude. Yeah? Yeah. Interesting. Very interesting. Got any stories you'd like to share with us right no, now? No, probably not for this show. Okay. <laughs> All right, you mentioned having health. Health was a big challenge for you. What other big career setbacks have you had to deal with and, and how have you gotten through them? I've had a few. I mean, my health was one, uh, the big one for sure, but my health uh, led to a lot of stress in our family. It led to our second uh, biggest, uh, my wife uh, and, and, and I ended up losing our second child due to a miscarriage because of the uh, stress that she was going through with me being in a like at that, They didn't know if I was going to live. My GP wow. at that point thought I was going to die. My, wow. my, my buddy, the GP, yeah. And uh, two and a half months later, pulled out. I was very, very lucky. Um, so losing, uh, losing our second child, obviously that was a major setback and caused a lot of stress. Yeah, I mean, there's always going to be setbacks, though. I mean, life right. is a series of setbacks, and 
rise ups, you know, that's really what it's all about. I mean, does anyone's life look like a punt? Like, is anyone's straight life- up and to the right? That's yeah. my line really? constantly. Is that your uninterrupted? I'm, I'm more Coca Cola. No. I mean, I'm a absolutely. I think that I think that's one of the big myths about about careers for young people is they get out of college or whatever and they say, okay, it's now it's off to the races and it's going to be one interrupted, you know, angle up to, up into the right. And it does. It, I mean, I've had lots of progress in that direction, but it goes up, it comes down, it goes up, it comes down. But life happens. How do you avoid life? There's going to be death in life. People have parents. Parents sure. die. People have pets. Pets die. Right. All that stuff, it, that adds up to stress. That's not, that is not the angle going straight right. That's not no. happening. No. All right. So. Sorry, I got a little too heavy no, there, that's folks. Great. That's probably. great. That, this isn't about... Life, life this, is heavy. This, this, this podcast is about, is about what goes on inside of us that drives us to do the things we do in our careers. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I, I guess to answer that question, I, I think what motivated me first and foremost was being, a, I swear to you, was being the fat kid in school. Yeah, because I was either you're not be fat th- anymore. What happened? No, uh, uh, Crohn's got me skinny. <laughs> <laughs> the new Crohn's it's a shitty diet disease, plan. but hey. yeah. Um, but uh, yeah, I, w- I was either going to be the uh, fat, tortured kid in school, or I was going to be the fat, funny kid that had the comeback. So I was the uh, cl- I was the class clown right away. So I think we're still all of us at fifty are still to some degree that kid we were in grade school. How does that kid show up for you? I sadly I still see me as uh, you know like put it this way you know you say I look I looked in and I appreciate that I'm still the psycho that looks in the mirror and I'm still the fat fuck that I was growing up <laughs> I am I'm just like I'm Jewish I'm neurotic that's what my people do you've seen Larry David's show we're not normal you I are, even sound are, more no, Jewish no. when I say it. we're not normal it is normal <laughs> it's just I think it's more it's sort of more just out in the open uh, it, it you, you could say wasps keep it in tight. I'm Catholic. Catholics are, you know, riddled with guilt from the earliest days of our grade school. Yeah, they put it hard on you too because oh, you have terrible. to go weekly to lift your guilt. Jews, That's we got right. one, one day uh, a year yeah. to get John rid of Stewart all of say? our guilt, and it's coming right up. What does John Stewart say about that? What, I, I Even know. in sin, you're paying retail. That's right. Even That's in right. sin, we pay retail. That's, That's right. a great line. I forgot about that. So to what extent is money a motivator for you to succeed now? Money was a huge motivator for me when I was a kid and starting off as a magician, growing up as from very middle uh, class family and growing up in a neighborhood where there are sets of very affluent, affluent people. And I grew up with a lot of affluent friends who got to go on trips every winter with their families, Mexico and Jamaica. And my family couldn't afford to do that. And so there's no question I was motivated a lot by money when I was uh, younger because I wanted to be able to do the things that my rich friends did. Right. When I got sick for two months, my wife took over accounting, controlling our fine by de facto. She had to. I, could, I was hospitalized. I couldn't do it. Hi, how are you? Hey, how's it going? Good. <laughs> um. And when that happened, um, and then we opened the businesses, she became the controllers for the businesses. And when that happened, uh, I can promise you this, um, I like knowing that I'm comfortable. I like knowing that, like this summer, I went to Scotland with my family and had a beautiful vacation. Uh, But I can promise you this much. I mean, I know what my property values are, but I can really tell you I have no clue what I'm worth. I don't know how much money I have. She's handled everything since the day I got sick. And in all honesty, I kind of like it. I like not being consumed by dollars and cents anymore because it did motivate me so much as a kid. 
Well, so what is motivating you to keep working hard at this point? Now it's the business. I, you know, I'll tell you what motivates me. I'm going to turn this over. Here, let me turn this one over for you so I can, even though we're on podcast, blank piece of paper. Okay, Paul's got a very long list of questions for Rick in front of him. That's what we're looking at. No, but this is a blank piece of paper I'm okay. looking at. And the reason why I'm looking at it, I once took a screenwriting course by a very famous Hollywood screenwriter by the name of Scott McKee, who, do, McKee, who, does a, uh, who wrote a book called Story. Mm-hmm. And it's all about screenwriting. And he said during the screenwriting workshop something that resonated with me and still does to this day was where he said the screenwriter is the only true artist on the project. Hmm. And went on, you know, people asked how so, what are you talking about? He goes, he goes, well, you know, an actor will read the lines on the paper and then he'll interpret how he thinks he should deliver those lines. A director will read those same lines and will... Also, try to imagine how he's going to shoot it, frame by frame. What are these pictures going to look like in my head? But the screenwriter is the only true person on, that pro- on the production Starts who started up. with a blank piece of paper yeah. and created the substance that everything else is built around. And that has really stuck with me. And that stuck with me more so as a comic than anything else because as comics, we all start with this blank piece As do business owners. And so do you feel... Sorry, I'm really going off a lot of topic. I know you out here trying to... No, this is great. No, this is great. This is... Where well, let me ask your regular podcast fans that are here: Is this is this one of his boring podcasts? Because I'm on it. Like last last week, he had a huge star or something, or a Nobel Prize winner Nobel last Prize week, winner, yeah. and he follows it up with the funny Jewish kid from Montreal. All right, seventy four year old Nobel Prize winning economist at Princeton. And as after we turned the the tape recorder, the tape recorder, I used a tape recorder. A tape recorder. I, I brought a cassette player. I tape all over all my old mix. Very tapes. hip. Very yeah. hip. So I bring my recorder there. I turn it off, and as I'm walking. Out the office, he's like, "Oh, have you seen the new Chappelle special?" And he starts talking about the Chappelle special. I'm like, "Oh my god, why? Why is this not on tape? Damn it!" Anyway, so no, it's not. Would have been great to get that. Actually, it would have been great. So okay, but business owners start with a blank slate, also. Yeah, absolutely. Do you feel? I mean, you're you're but, spending more time on the business side than you are artistically. Are you getting your artistic Jones off? No, sadly, through the no. business. I, I'm getting a different Jones off through the mm-hmm. business. A little bit on the artistic side, sadly, because albeit, although I hate social media, it's a necessary evil, and I'm the guy that does it for our company. Why am I the guy that does There's it for the company? There's some 22-year-old out there that you could hire. I'm going to tell you why. Because I had a company like that, that mm. when you have you know, four locations, you're paying six, eight grand a month to have people do social media for you. Right. You know? And then on top of that, when they place the ad on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, they get a 15% commission on that. When I took that over... Ad my, agencies, man. There you go. And then at the, uh, here's ultimately why I stopped working with companies like that and took it over myself. At the end of the day, yes, they know algorithms. Yes, they know the social media. Yes, they know when the algorithms get changed. But at the end of the day, what is social media? What is a tweet? What is a Facebook post? It's copy. It's ad copy, especially when you're advertising events in a venue, which is what we're doing. We produce over 30 shows a week in our venues. So when you're writing ad copy, so I had a company doing this, and then they'd always submit to me, like, Rick, are you good with this? And I'd end up doing a rewrite on it because ultimately I'm a, I'm a writer first and foremost, right? You're a better writer than most business graduates. So I took it over right. and put eight grand back in my pocket every month. Mm-hmm. So I uh, hate social media for myself was what I was going to say, but I understand it as a necessary evil for certainly running a business and uh, 
I don't remember where I was going with that. I went off on a tangent well, somewhere. Well, we're talking about the creative differences. Or, oh, is there, right. Is so there that's a creative where I benefit? still get to be a little bit creative. Believe it or not, you still can have some fun in your social media uh, being creative. And uh, also, we get to work with the artists that are coming in, too. And sometimes we produce a few like tandem video things like interview stuff that make for some creative posts as well. So, yeah, I still get to, but not like when you went from doing 400 shows a year. I mean, put it to you this way. After my first club started having the type of success where I felt, you know what, this is great. I no longer have to go on the road. I think I'm going to not go on the road. I'll just work local. No more touring. Right. And then I stayed home for about a year and a half. So imagine this, right? I had a marriage where I would see my wife about two months out of the year. And then uh, when I got sick and got home, we were together 12, like all that we worked together, lived together. We were always together. That's an adjustment. So 100%. So I remember thinking two completely opposite thoughts. I remember thinking the day how happy I was that the club was doing well enough that I no longer had to be a comic on the road and go do those crappy hell gigs in the middle of nowhere. And then I stayed at home with my family for 18 months straight and I thought to myself, God, if someone could just book me on a gig that pays $75 eight hours from here, I would be the happiest son of a bitch in the world. Are you telling me that when you wake up every morning, your kids don't applaud when you come downstairs oh and tell you how God. funny you are? Wife is best friend. Dad is hard ass. Right. Wife was raised by an RCMP. For those of you that don't know, that's like an FBI on a horse. <laughs> All right. Royal Canadian Mounted Police. So she was raised by a very strict father. So how is she making up for it? With through my success and her success, spoiling the shit out of our children. Sure. And I still come from the old school of being so middle class and counting my pennies that I hate that they're not as motivated as I was, you know, because... How do you, are they, so you said your kids are 23 and 15. 23 and 15, You're that's not right. Seeing, I, I get laid every eight years. You can do the math, Peter. Go uh, ahead. Thank you. You've said that before. Thank you. Uh, you. You say your kids aren't as motivated as you were. How's that manifesting? <sighs> Look, it's... it's I. I Cause I, I, my kid, I have the same issue. I have to come to terms as to you that it's a different generation. Right. But what bothers me are the little things like this is... Coming home from school any day as a kid, no matter what season it was, it was either road hockey outside, stickball outside, or ice hockey on the rink. But, like, we always did something. I still live in a neighborhood with families, and I never see kids out on the road. My kids are stuck on their computers all the time. And right. I'm lucky, though, that my kids are still very, like, I'm fortunate. I have the type of kids that can talk to adults because a lot of younger kids have a real hard time doing that. But my kids are pretty good in that respect. But I just wish they were more motivated, you know, to, you know, understand what it's like to have to put in like a 12, 14 hour physical day of work. You know, I right. wish they'd both go get jobs that were labor intensive so they could appreciate. If only you owned a business where you needed people to carry stuff from a kitchen to a table. Yeah. Uh, it's not that easy to boss your kid around. <laughs> Have they worked in the business? Yeah, my eldest does work in the business. Oh, good. Yeah. Good. And uh, he actually pretty good. He's off in New York. He works on the management side. We represent talent. We have a management division and uh, He's there for the next two months and a bunch of meetings with a few of the comics we represent. Cool. Does Little Rick, when you go from, from working the road and, and performing, everybody, one of the reasons we all get into comedy is because there's just a great rush when you make a whole bunch of people laugh. Absolutely. And they applaud. That feels real good. 100%. So 
Fat Little Rick's not getting applause anymore. Nope. Do you like being a person of status in an industry? Does that give you any of the Let of, me answer that question this way. Fat Little Rick this summer bought a smoker, and now I'm a pit master, and that's all I give a shit about. <laughs> I make the best fucking brisket you will ever try. I promise you. What kind of a smoker did you buy? I bought... I bought a Traeger smoker. It's a pellet smoker, and uh-huh. so it's not like the big logs. It's yeah. got the pellet chips, but it's easier to maintain. And uh, that, honestly, I will answer. I, I know more. I have watched every Aaron Franklin video online. I've taken the master class. Okay. Nice. Okay. Yeah. All right. So you asked me about status. I, I am never at the club really because of the nature of my business. My I'm working much more banker hours. I'm an right. eight to six kind of guy. Yep. The last thing I want to do is go into the club at night. I'm pretty tired. I've got a good team in place in my clubs. I've trained them well. They know what they're doing. I don't need to be there nightly. Is your smoker, is this in your house <laughs> in Scottsdale or in Edmonton? My smoker is in Edmonton. Okay. Because I ch- summer for me, I spend up there because they're the two best months in Canada. Sure. And let's July and August here, I mean... I, it's the surface of the sun, so sure, not no. Flagstaff, but where I am in Scottsdale, obviously. Yeah. Right. I'm from Atlanta. That's where the Big Green Egg Hot Company Atlanta, is, you know it. Is, is the Big Green Egg Company's headquartered there, so we'll need to work that into the next uh, your next smoker renovation. Fair enough. I'm okay. happy to. The next question is about purchasing and how we spend money in a way that makes us happy. What I just heard you said, you feel like the, buying a smoker is a great use of dough. Absolutely, what? yeah. I, I, but I used to be one of those guys that tried to buy happiness. Like, I mean, I went through every phase. Um, I, I bought camera gear, and I got really big into photography. And I, and I still am a bit of a hobbyist, but not as gung-ho for the amount of gear that I currently own. Right. Um, and I go through phases where I, tr- I lash onto hobbies and spend more than I should. And I went through the midlife crisis and bought the uh, fancy sports car. What'd and, you buy? Oh, they see this. Just, I don't like talking about this on. That just sounds obnoxious. And I didn't buy it. I didn't buy it. What'd you rent? I, I rent, and I'm glad I did because I got rid of it right away. I put 10,000, 9,800 miles on in three years. On which kind of car are we talking I about? I bought a Jag F type. Oh, those are cool. That's yeah, fast really too. nice. Yeah, yeah, yeah right. really, really fast. Is, so, so, why'd you get rid of it? Couldn't justify it. It's not. I mean, I could afford it, but mm-hmm. when you only put ninety eight hundred miles on something, it's just it's ridiculous to have that much money tied up into a depreciating asset that you're not freaking using. It's so it's common sense is why I got rid of it. If it's common sense, why did I buy it in the first well, place? Why, why, I know. Why, why do so many people? Because I'm through this? midlife crisis. Right, but the, you lose a little bit of hair, you gain a little weight. Young girls stop wanting to sleep with you. You buy an expensive <laughs> fucking car, Peter. What the hell? It's Paul. But that's okay. Paul. I'm sorry. Jesus Christ. <laughs> But it, it, I Peter, did say I Peter's, smoked pot earlier, Paul. Peter's, I did Peter's say Paul. my confirmation name, so it's fine. That is so funny. I've done uh, that twice then now. What's that? I th- said Peter earlier, oh, too. Have you? Yeah. See, I'm not even We're going to do taste, but we'll just get him. I'll just do a bunch of different calls after, and then we'll cut them all but up that after. that experience is exactly oh. It's oh. The, myth, the, myth that, uh, the myth that having a cool car or a badass watch or a huge house will make you happy. Fit, fit. That's all I wear fit, now. Fit. Right. Yeah. That's all I wear every day. I, I have fancy watches. I never right. take this off. I've got three Swiss watches in my sock drawer. Every day. I got to sell those now. Yeah, I've honestly stopped. I've stopped caring. I really, really have. I used to be a lot. When I was an entertainer, it was very important for me to make sure that everyone loved me and everyone saw my image. Now being a bit more behind the scenes, I don't need to be nearly as concerned about image. And what's even better is I can be the hard-ass negotiator because I'm pretty good at it because I am not the guy on stage that needs to make the audience love me. I can be a bit of a prick if I have to at times. (laughs) 
So detachment makes you a better negotiator. I, absolutely, without question. If so, I were still the entertainer, I would not be nearly as good a negotiator. Because you're looking for some kind of affirmation. Hundred percent. Oh, I'm leaving so looking for a laugh. Right. Not looking for the best deal. Right. Mm. You know, when that gears on, you know what it's like. You're always looking for the laugh. Yeah. yeah. Good night. Got yeah. it. <laughs> oh God, I'm gonna quit now. What do you hate to spend money on? Besides your kids' data, mobility. Besides your kids' data plan. Data, yeah. Um, what do I hate spending money on? Oh, this was going to be what I had in my beer conversation with you afterwards. But I'll just briefly. I won't go into yes. too much detail. Um, I hate spending money on things that should already be mine. My favorite example: Facebook. If I have a Facebook person that chooses to follow my web, um, our Facebook site because they're fans of what we do and we've earned their business and we've earned their confidence, I should not have to pay money for them to see advertisements of upcoming shows. They've, I've already paid to win them over once. Why am I still paying to win them over again? So for the people here in the room... That Sorry for getting a little dark, but it was, worked, it was angled. I, I worked at Facebook selling advertising for four and a half years, and when fans, the nature of fans came out, people asked, well, after you sell them a fan, what are they going to buy? So anyway... Anyways, that's our beer chat. Right, that's at, our beer chat. Promise me that's okay, our beer chat Besides later, your right? grill, what brings you the most joy in the way you spend money? <sighs> Um, I'd have to say I really do love travel and I really like it if it can be with the family because I find it's the one time where I can get my kids off their social media and off their computers for a lengthy period of time. And, uh, and albeit we're always going out to eat because it's on vacation, but we're sitting down and eating as a family, which never happens in the right. real world anymore. Certainly not my real world. And I know a lot of other people, so I can imagine it's got to be a lot of people listening to this cast. So, yeah, I do love to... I like travel a lot. I enjoy it. I'm a big fan of other cultures. I like... I still like learning, you know? That's one thing uh, I thrive. I like, I like knowledge. I really do thrive on knowledge. And travel is one of the best ways to, uh, to get knowledge. If you were to give me one book that would have an impact on me, what would it be? Ooh. It's, it's funny you say that, that right now. Thank a you. Great que it's funny you say that right now because this was like an argument for me all summer. So I took my family to Amsterdam and... I absolutely forced my 15-year-old son to read the diary of Anne Frank because we were going to, you know, the uh, the house, Frank we were house yeah. the Frank house, and um, I knew just how much more powerful that visit would be to him if he read her words. So. Uh, albeit I could list off a whack of books, uh, that's really the one right now that's just just so fresh in me because of how I got my kid to uh, commit to reading it prior right. to going. And what impact did that make on him or her? Uh, both hymns, two boys. Okay. Yeah, two boys. Um, you know, he never really said anything to me. It wasn't like, Dad, I'm glad you made me read it or anything <laughs> along those Kids lines. Kids don't do that as much but as you'd like. But just knowing our children the way we know our children, I can just tell by how he was engaged on the tour that it was absolutely, it, it did its job for sure. Right. Yeah, that's yeah. a that's an impactful place to visit. Yeah, yeah. probably then not. You got to head to the Heineken Brewery after that to 
click wash well, it all off. So that was the bonus now. But here, here's the bonus, folks, about being a bar owner and a restaurant owner in this day and age is when you do go tour Scotland and various parts of Europe where there's breweries and uh, and you get to go for uh, and Irish whiskeys and scotches, you call up your local liquor rep who you're spending hundreds of thousands of dollars on every year buying their liquor, and then they call ahead and you are on a VIP tour yeah. of some of the coolest things you've ever done. Yeah. yeah. You go to the Cove and have dinner with... Dude, I was invited up to the Glenmorangie Castle, but it was like too far away to even go. But they were going to allow our family to stay up there, and they cook for you. And yeah, I mean, uh, I have falconry to... and take down a stag while you're at <laughs> no, it. No, that I'm a golfer. My thing there is oh, golf. Yeah? I'm a big golfer. Oh, yeah, okay. huge, huge golfer. Good. That's what brought me to Arizona. It wasn't business. I I came here during the recession, like every other snowbird. We bought a house when everyone was, uh, you know, They're unfortunately failing. suffering yeah. with uh, with their uh, with the bailouts and. Um, uh, I came down here to be a, uh, a tourist and just we saw a need for uh, we saw the North Valley growing in the Phoenix neighbor area and we decided to get roll the dice gamble a little bit and uh, turns out we made the right decision yeah. you know that's really keeps expanding the North Valley so yeah. my, my in-laws live there are they yeah, yeah they're actually moved back down from North Scottsdale into Scottsdale but uh, we can talk about that later all right uh, okay we're wrapping up pretty quickly what do you want to do in your career or life? What do you want to accomplish in your career or life that you have not yet done or accomplished? Wow. God, you should send me these questions beforehand. I'm sorry. No, that's like heavy. Like, because, I mean, truthfully, I mean... This I'm, is not I'm, a show about, like, investing, you know, like no, ETFs no, I, versus... I have to... Truthfully, I feel very fortunate. Look, you know this, and all the comics that are sitting here know this. Everyone wants a higher level of success than where they're at. But I also know that there are guys that would kill to have the type of success that I, to have their own series for three years. I've done four different independent uh, stand-up specials on TV. I toured the globe doing comedy. Uh, I've ha been lucky enough to work on multiple TV shows. I've worked in a few films. And to many people, that's... Massive success, and even to me, I I don't want to, you know, belittle that. That's hugely. I'm very proud of all those things. Mm -hmm. So those are all successful. But am I my, am I my fellow Canadian Jim Carrey? No, I mean, but I mean that's why I think people just have to be realistic about where their success barometer is. You know, mm -hmm. what is the level? What's going to make you happy? You know, you asked me a question, or you gave me that example before we went on the air today about the 75,000 uh, was, oh. was the magical number of uh, that, the happy equator. Yeah, this, there's a study that was done by this economist who was on my podcast last week saying that happiness, past $75,000 in annual income, there's no incremental happiness. There's incremental life evaluation in terms of how how's your life going, but in terms of how lifestyle, did you, right? Did you not lifestyle, but life evaluation? Life value, okay. Meaning, I, like, does your life have like on what if you were to rank your life from zero to ten, where would you rank it? That goes up, it continues to go up way in, with income, way higher with income. With income, but did you smile? Did you laugh? Did right. were you angry? were you happier? Were you stressed yesterday? The answers yeah. to those questions are not. You don't get more happy past $75,000 a year. Anyway, there's a long explanation. No, and that, no, but that's what I find. It's, it's kind of like we're touching on that, yeah. though, here. Yeah, I, I, I feel, look, if, if comedy ended for me today um, and business ended, life ended, whatever, um, I would feel very proud of what I have accomplished without question. Are there still things I want to accomplish? Yeah, I've got more venues to open. Uh, yeah, and a, a little bit of part of me wants to build a bit 
of a comedy empire. I, I'd like to go head to head with the improvs out there, you know? Ooh, um, throw it down. And, and not only that, at the same time, more importantly, when I do those things or when my wife and I do those things, I have to give her a lot of the credit. We build more opportunity for more comedians to perform, and ultimately what we really want is to develop com. We don't want to see this art form ever disappear in our lifetime. There was talk about it when it popped up in the late 70s and the 80s, that it's going to be a phase and they're going to disappear. And it wasn't a fad. It hung around for a long time. It stuck around. And... Uh, not only does it need to stick around, but it needs to keep growing. It needs to get bigger. It needs to be beyond small, crappy basements. There needs to be beautiful rooms that are dedicated to the art of comedy. And, I mean, and, and people at home need to appreciate comics for what they are. They are comedians. They're satirists. Don't be offended by what they say. You don't have to like what they say. You can leave. But... Don't be offended. I mean, folks, they're just words. No word has ever killed any... Bullets kill a lot of friggin' people, but no word has ever put a hole in someone. I love it. Wow. I love it. That's solid. So, so timely as well. Does anybody in the room have questions for Rick? Let me repeat the question if I could. Sure. If you could tell your younger comedian self something that you've learned, what would it be? Did I get it? Okay. Never to have tried cocaine. <laughs> Product, product of 80s comedy, yeah. No, really. Um, uh, you know, it's, uh, I dabbled in a lot of drugs, but mostly because of my Crohn's disease. Uh, for a great deal of my life, I was on very high levels of painkillers and narcotics, uh, and I didn't think anything of it because my doctor was prescribing it. I have a disease. Here's your drugs. Keep taking it. But uh, there's no question I built up a huge dependency to drugs, and uh, it was very difficult getting off of them. Yeah, I don't want to say I did a lot of coke, but I know a lot of cult. I know what I call it a lot of ways. Here, here, I'll tell you a great story. Here's how I knew I needed to leave Montreal, if I'll tell you a great drug story. This is 1990, Just for Laughs Festival. I am hanging out with the late, great Sam Kinison, and oh, I am wow. a pig in a... I am in my glory. I'm hanging out with Sam Kinison. It is 4 o'clock in the morning on a Tuesday, and <laughs> Sam Kinison turns to me. We're out of blow. And he says, Rick, do you know where we can get any more... You know where we can get any more blow? And I was like, yeah. You know, I'm from Montreal. I live there. And within a half hour, we had more blow, and... It was only weeks later that it struck me and it really occurred to me that no human being should be able to track down cocaine on a Tuesday at 4.30 in the morning. <laughs> like, it wasn't even a fucking weekend. It wasn't a Friday or Saturday. It was a Tuesday. Uh, and, the best uh, dealers, are they're, they're there for you. They know when you're going to call. I guess. I guess. And yeah, that he was... He had a, his beeper on. He was ready. <laughs> that was when I knew I needed to leave Montreal. I was too connected. Oh, wow. That's yeah. funny. Well, those are two little very interesting story endings there. Huh? Yeah, we might have to move this one deep. up in the interview. <laughs> we'll do this the old cut job here, folks. All right, I'm going to wrap it up with one last question. Who's your favorite comedian? Oh, come on, dude. Dude. Uh, who's your favorite dead comedian? Since you don't, That's you, fair. You don't I, to, I can accept that. You don't have to deal with anybody's um, agent calling you after this. I, th I think only because I became a historian of this and I've gone back. You know, I started in 85, so uh, uh, I've got to work with a comic from a 70s generation, 80, like every generation. I got to work with the Smothers Brothers. Oh, so wow. um, I've, I've got to learn a lot about comedy history, and they got me onto a lot of stuff. And uh, I have two really favorite dead. I mean, first and foremost, I got to say Lenny Bruce because mm -hmm. he just he paved the way. In my humble opinion, he paved the way. 
it weren't for him getting arrested as often as he did, I mean, we wouldn't be able to do what we do today. You can't say fuck. I mean, unbelievable. You can't say fuck the government. But then, when, you know, I grew up, man, I think the first comedy that I really got into as a kid, the first stand-up that rocked my world was Pryor. Yeah. Yeah, so, um, yeah, I'd love to see both those guys back, that's for sure. But then, I mean, we just talked about Kinnison. I mean, the best screamer ever. <laughs> it's uh, so many guys. There's so many. And there's so many guys. And the reason I hate answering now, there's so many guys that I love right now. Like Andrew Santino, I'm loving what he's doing yeah. right now. So good. And, I mean, uh, love or hate Chappelle's last special. I love how he's pushing buttons, oh, I man. Loved it. I love I it. it. Love it. Yeah. And, uh, I mean, yeah, there's so many guys that I have respect for. At the end of the day, having been a performer, uh, I have nothing, even when a comic is in their early stages and still developing, I have nothing but the utmost respect for anybody who gets up on stage in front of a room full of strangers to seek their approval and try <laughs> to make them laugh. It's a cry for help. Yes. <laughs> Yes. Not as bad as starting a podcast. But it's no podcast. There you right. go. Closer. <laughs> All right. So Rick Bronson's House of Comedy in Minneapolis, Scottsdale, Edmonton. And what's the new club going to be called? Same thing? Um, it'll be House. They'll be, uh, we're actually opening up a House of Comedy brand and a comic strip brand. Both in East Rutherford? No. We have a couple of different locations going on. But like I said, there's a few things I couldn't really talk about on air. Awesome. Well, a little bit of an NDA issue right now. Okay. So if you find yourself people in Scottsdale, the Great Lakes area, or Edmonton. Actually, just Google houseofcomedy.net, bookmark it, and you'll see a few new venues being added to that because that's the landing page. So it'll take you to all of our clubs, houseofcomedy.net. Awesome. Well, best of luck with the new locations. Thanks, bud. It was a lot of fun. I I hope this was the direction was all right for you. Absolutely. It was great. I appreciate it. Your fans seemed relatively Yay. entertained. Thank you, fans. And they Goodbye. came from Vegas to see you. Nice. Nice. See y'all. There you have it, Rick Bronson. I really enjoyed talking to him and getting to know him a little bit. If you find yourself in Phoenix, Edmonton, the greater Minneapolis area, or East Rutherford, New Jersey, go check out a show at one of Rick's clubs. They'll do the curation. You just show up, eat, drink, and laugh your head off. Thank you so much for sticking around. I hope you're having a great day. Keep going with that. And thank you to Mr. Michael Carano for editing this thing. Talk to you later.